Hello, and welcome to I Want What She Has, a show that amplifies women's voices and their stories. I'm your host, Teresa Widman, and it's our last Wednesday. It's our last chapter of Caliban and the Witch. It's the last day of Women's History Month. This is like the pinnacle of March. And um, I'm excited and saddened also at the same time that our conversation about the book is ending. Um, But hopefully this won't be the end of the three of us discussing things like this. Um, I welcome back to the show, Carolita Johnson and Raquel Stammer, both artists and educators and wise women. And we are going to be talking about chapter five, colonization and Christianization. It's the last chapter of Sylvia Federici's Caliban and the Witch. We are streaming live on Radio Kingston's Facebook page. If you'd like to um, follow along in that way, you can feel free to make any comments whatsoever in the feed, and I'll try to follow along and bring them into the conversation. The um, This show is moving to Moon Days starting next week, friends, so just mark your calendars. And... Um, and I wanted to also add um, a big thanks to Women's History Month Kingston. It is the end of Women's History Month, but I know that they will continue to offer programming via their website for different events that happen to uh uh, align with their mission. And so you can go to their website, whmk.org, periodically follow them on social media, and you can stay tuned to other events associated with women's history. And last little bit of announcements is that the book is available at Sassafras in Kingston. So it took a little while to have books delivered. And so apologies if people were um, wanting to get in earlier, but this is the type of book that you don't just kind of plow through and put away. It's to me, one of those, uh, I've spent a lot of time (laughs) reading this book and thinking about it. Uh, I I know Raquel has read it more than once. And um, these types of conversations will continue, I hope, in different ways. And and I am happy to revisit any of these subjects at any point if folks go out and get the book and, and dig more deeply into it and something resonates with you or you feel like we didn't, you know, fully discuss it, um, you know, reach out and we can we can revive the conversation. I'm totally happy to do that. And so I'll link to Sassafras's website uh, in the show notes if you're not familiar, if you are local and want to grab a copy of the book. Any other announcements from you two ladies that feels relevant? Anything, anything? Um, well, I want to say if people are going to Sassafras, then they can also see my artwork down there when they're going down there because it's hanging on the walls. Um, Excellent. And also, I was wondering if we should announce what's happening on the 19th. We should, Raquel. And you 
<laughs> you should have the honors of doing that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, we're having uh, Silvia Federici come on the show and we'll be doing an interview with her. <laughs> Woo! 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 <laughs> um, so that's going to be like the last hurrah and then I'm off to Risa's show. <laughs> so, um, but yeah, it's really great. She, um, I reached out to her and asked if she wanted to come on and do a little interview and she said yes because Silvia Federici is amazing and... Um, is very generous with her time. Um, so we'll be, yeah, discussing a few things. Like, I'm, I mean, me and Teresa still need to talk a little bit about exactly what we want to ask her, but um, I think it's going to be really incredible. And to be honest, I'm just such a fangirl. I'm like, ah, I get to talk with my <laughs> idol, you know? Uh, so I think everybody should uh, tune in for that because that's actually really big. <laughs> So yeah, yeah that's happening yeah. on the 19th. Yeah, I'm so excited and so grateful that you were able to make that happen, Raquel. It's amazing. So yeah, April 19th, uh, we'll be talking to the woman, Sylvia Federici. Anything going on for you, Carolita? You're muted. <laughs> Hi. Hi. <laughs> um. Well, you know, what do you mean going on like outside of this show? Yeah. Like anything you just feel like sharing. <laughs> um, well, uh, on the 13th, I'm going to be on a podcast with um, Sari Botten about the goodbye to all that uh, re-edition. And um, I, I'm just quite proud of my essay that is included in it because I actually mention um, women and rent and older women and, you know, subjects we've talked about here and how, you know, uh, women are particularly impacted by the high rents of New York. So I will be reading, I think, a passage from my essay on that. That's exciting. Do you know yeah. the podcast? Or I can reach out to Sari and find out. It's on Eventbrite. Um, okay. It's, gonna, it's like it's in, in uh, tied in with uh, Rough Draft. Okay. Uh, on Eventbrite. And it's uh, Sari Button's Goodbye to All That. I I should have, I didn't realize that this was a good moment to plug myself. Oh, so <laughs> I will find the information and I will put it in the show notes so That'd that be great. people can find it. That's exciting. I'm glad. I'm so glad that I asked. Oh, I'm so glad about the Sylvia Federici on the 19th. Oh my right? gosh. <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah. Do you know, I actually wrote to her. I was like, can I take your class? Any class? Any class? <laughs> <laughs> Did you get any response? No. <laughs> huh. I probably sounded like some weirdo. So um, you can put in a good word for me. <laughs> oh, well, certainly. I mean, it could also be that you, that maybe the email isn't working, you know, like. True. I, yeah. It's hard I think I wrote these to days. Her at the university email. Right. Because uh, that was all I could find. But yeah, I was like, so like excited one day that I was like, I, 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 I got to do something. <laughs> I mean, my opinion is you should always reach out to your idol. You know, yeah. like I'm I like, I, they can always just ignore me, you know, like what, you know, totally. Yeah. I mean, I've like sent people letters to their addresses, like my favorite writers and was like, Hey, I really love your work. And I mean, <laughs> I'm like imagining that being a writer is like quite 
unfulfilling. Well, I mean, it's probably great in many ways, but you don't get to interact with people about your work. I mean, it's the same as being a visual artist. Both you and I know that, Carolina. Like, other people engage with your work. You're not there. It's yeah. awesome when people tell you that they like your work. So just for anybody listening out there, I love letters. You can write yeah, me all- any day. <laughs> <laughs> it's always worth a try. It's yeah, always totally. worth a try. Yeah. I will say my husband sent he he went so far as to like write a screenplay of his favorite book and sent it to the author um and got a response um wow. from the person and it, it it just was like a really special experience um so that's just to further that that initiative you know like you said Carlita what's the worst thing they don't respond yeah 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 and as long as it's not creepy it's not a problem, you know, like, it's know, like, about, should I, mean, I it's check about, my email? <laughs> no, but I mean, I think it's about like engaging with the work, not the person. I think often people make the mistake of being like, oh my God, I must have this artist in my life or I want to be friends yeah. with them or whatever. And they kind of miss the split between the work and the person where it's like, you may love the work. That doesn't mean that you need to have like a personal connection with that person. And I think the moment when it becomes like, I want to be in your life. It's a little bit like, <laughs> like maybe not, you know, like, but there's not. a difference to that to be like, Hey, can I take a class or like, I love your work or whatever, yeah. you know? Well, and is she, do you know if Sylvia is still teaching? Well, that was what I was trying to ascertain. It was really hard to tell from just like perusing the internet, I have to say. So, yeah. The question we'll was, are out. you teaching and can I, can I take your class? <laughs> we'll find out. We yeah. will find out. We can find that out. Oh, yeah. Yeah, we can ask her. It's like, <laughs> anything else you want to know, Carolina? We'll just like... <laughs> well, you know, I also figured, like, especially now that everything's Zoomed, you know, like, it might be easier to let people attend your class that aren't part of, like, an entire, you know, college curriculum, which I cannot afford at this point, you know. Yeah. And um, I've often audited people's classes without, you know, being a pest, so... <laughs> That's the way to go. <clears throat> so should we talk about chapter five? Yeah. Um, I can give just a little bit of a summary to the listeners, to those who may not be familiar with the book. Um, as I mentioned, the title is Colonization and Christianization, Caliban and Witches in the New World. And a lot of the themes general themes of this chapter, I think, have been touched on in other parts of the book and even in our conversations. Um, But the basic, very kind of high-level summary is that the tactics that were employed against the proletariat and the women in Europe were largely the same tactics that were used in the Americas, in the process of colonizing this land. And, you know, those tactics, just as kind of a, like a reminder and overview was the demonization of the individuals, uh, which was basically a way of justifying that kind of behavior that they were imposing upon them. They used media campaigns. They eventually forced labor, if I remember correctly, um, once you know, it was sort of like operating a little bit like the feudal system where you p- paid something to like the lords. I don't know what the, the names were actually in largely in South America. Um, 
But when that really didn't provide enough income, they started to force labor because of the gold and silver mining that was going on and the wealth that they wanted to capture through that process. This inevitably led to revolts, just like it did in the um, in the feudal system, which intensified really the efforts to control the people. Uh, women then were kind of brought into a uh, a more deeper kind of demonization. The the witch hunts were then you, you know employed in uh, in this land. And people started to turn against one another, which is what we saw also in Europe when, you know, husbands, neighbors, et cetera, were turning women in um, and accusing them of witchcraft. And she also talks in this chapter a little bit about how um, some other theories exist about, you know, kind of which happened first. Did, did the witch hunting and the behavior inspired by what the um, colonizers were seeing in in, um, he, in South America, did that inspire the witch hunts or drive the witch hunts in Europe? Did it create a resurgence of the witch hunts in Europe? So there's a little bit of a, a conversation about that. And then she kind of ends the chapter with uh, a review of a very short review of really how witch hunting continues at the time of writing this book, which was 2004 is when she published the book, I think. Um, so she kind of talks about how this, you know, Brit Britain and colonized many different areas, you know, so in Africa, in India. And so these, these practices were employed in other parts of the world, not just the Americas. But they also continue today, as we referenced last week when we talked about what was happening to the women in Ghana who were being relocated to witch camps um, and their land being seized and all of that. So that's a little short summary. Um, do either of you want to maybe clarify or add anything that I missed of like a main topic or just start with something that's interesting to you? Raquel? Um, I think your summary was really good. I mean, I think like there's nothing I want to add to it. I was like, yes, that's basically also how I understand the chapter. It's not so long um, compared to some of the other chapters. And it's fairly sort of, um, I mean, it's like, covering a big landmass because it, it focuses on like the Americas, like primarily Latin and South America. Um, so it jumps in a lot of different cultures, which is a little like, I was like, whoa, I don't know where we are or what, what place or what culture we're talking about. But it also seems like it's fairly like sort of um, restricted in time. So compared to some of the other chapters, like, where it's a lot of different lines, like throughout large periods of time, it's like give or take a couple hundred years that she's discussing. This felt a little more um, sort of uh, like 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 a like a smaller field time-wise, but then like the area that she's sort of jumping through is really big, you know. Um, 
so it it felt very different. Like this chapter felt really different from from other chapters in in my experience reading it. Um, but I thought like the point that she that the the far as far as I understand like why this chapter is there is to say like ultimately which trials is a part of primitive accumulation and wherever there's primitive accumulation there's gonna be witch trials and so she's sort of saying like in that she's pushing back on this attitude that is just this backward um sort of medieval idea that came about because people were uneducated so in a way it's almost like you can see how this is like i mean one could like make the argument that like this is a part of capitalist ventures and capitalist enclosures that use the the witch trials whenever they need to sort of perform these enclosures and primitive accumulation um so it's not i mean it's not said so directly in the text that she's basically saying like this is this is a counter argument for people who think that witch trials were just a product of medieval society, you know, but that's basically how I read it. There is a, I want to, I want to say something to that, but if, if there's something that comes up for you, Carolita, before I jump into it. Um, I think I just, in my mind, it's just very much more simplified in that, you know, in order to promote capitalism, um, it, it's very necessary to just always crush the women. And um, I think in some cases it's probably easier than in other cases. Like, um, like in the, in the Americas, it was a little harder for some reason. Like we, we see the way some of the women escaped into the higher lands with their religion and stuff. But I mean, you know, I've just been reading a lot of stuff about the Aztecs and the Incas and women were, you know, there was a division of labor amongst men and women there too, and women were not exactly feminists. So, you know, I guess it's just easy to, it was easy to transpose this division from Europe onto them. But yeah, I, it, it, my, 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 my whole vision is very clouded right now because I just spent the last hour reading about the Incas and the Mayas and, and how, you know, and I was like, like where am I? What yeah. land am I in? <laughs> what right. time period but, am know, I in? They were just as, as, as terrible to women <laughs> as, as the Europeans were. Uh, only they weren't like, you know, I, I, it, it wasn't like a, I, I just, it's hard to, I, I don't know what I'm trying to say here. It's like, it was just one form of repression replaced by another in some cases. Um, and one, a different victor gaining power than the other. And the Europeans just made it worldwide instead of just like local to some community in South America or Mexico or, you know what I mean? Um, but it, it's obvious that if you look at even the Mayans and the Aztecs, it is definitely important to divide men and women uh, and in order to to control them, that's that is definitely the first thing you've got to do is get control over the women. So um, yeah, even if the, the Aztecs and the Incans were doing it before the Spain, Spaniards arrived, they were it, it's still an effective strategy. 
as we see. Yeah. And we're back. I'm just trying to figure out how to share the Facebook feed with my page, but I don't know why I can't ever figure this out. Oh, look at that. A little delay. <laughs> um, okay, so we're talking colonization and Christianization. Chapter 5 of uh, Sylvia Federici's Caliban and the Witch with uh, Carolita and Raquel. And... Um, just share it. I do not multitask very well, so my apologies. I don't think anyone actually multitasks very well, right? <laughs> but um, I really just my brain shorts out. So uh, you were just talking, Carolita, about. Whoops, I meant to turn that down, not up. <laughs> okay, <laughs> but full attention is here. Yes. Um. <clears throat> the one of the things that you said. Raquel was, uh, you know, this idea that the witch hunts were this tactic that was employed, um, basically in the f in, in as a method of primitive accumulation, which is this way of accumulating kind of wealth, so to speak, so that capitalism is working for certain people, so that certain people are earning money in the process. Others are basically being, you know taken advantage of and controlled and and carolita you talked about how this is sort of like women have been controlled in many civilizations um and i feel like we kind of talked about this last week when we were talking about right is this just a desire for control and power and wealth and that at that ultimately that's just a human desire by certain folks not everyone but and that you know capitalism is a system that works well to support that for certain people and that there are going for whatever reason the people who have and hold the power are able to keep people who don't have the power which is often minority groups and women they are able to keep them under their control. And um, and to me, that's kind of how I see all of this. And, and, and it's almost like, you know, I don't even know that they thought consciously about it as they were doing it, right? Like, it's like there's an impulse to have control and they're go or to have money and power that might be the real impulse to have money and power and then people are going to do what they need to do to do that to be able to obtain that and because we have virtually no control over our brains we actually start to believe things that allow us to to do that stuff so it's like almost like then their brain settled into this campaign that women are lesser than, so we are going to persecute them or we are going to control them or we are going to find the ones that we don't like or we are going to you know, figure out a way um, it, or just naturally we are going to start to judge people and their behavior and start to regulate it in a certain way um, because, because we believe it's bad. But ultimately, the motivation is because we want power over the system, 
which ultimately is because we want money. Um, and I still feel like that's exactly what we're dealing with today. And I don't know how we, like, how do we start to shift that? I know that's not in the text, but like, you know, what, what do we do about it? You know, what just keeps coming to mind right now while you're speaking um, is there's this great mosaic in the subway about near Bryant Park. I forget who the quote is from, but it says um, something like nature must not win, but it must not be defeated. I think I've just paraphrased it very succinctly, but it's, it's sort of like that. It's like, you know, you can't, there's got to be a balance, you know, like if you crush the women (laughs) and turn them into the uterus, you know, and childbearing machines, you've just destroyed something, you know, in nature um, that could be a complementary, you know, there's, there's just no reason to, to just destroy people who you need to control. Um, It's, it's not sustainable. Is basically it's not sustainable. The, no, <laughs> I mean, eventually you will either run out of people entirely, or you have to move to somebody else to control. Yeah. Um, yeah. Or you know, this part of land is no longer farmable. You know, we got to move to that part, and eventually nothing's left. So, um, I mean, there's one way of of it of it ending, which is it ends. Yeah, Raquel. <laughs> just to say, now you're talking like true social democrats. <laughs> like, I mean, like, I mean, that's said like t- tongue in cheek, but that's basically the whole idea of like, we need to sustain the working population enough for them to continue to work, but we, we can't give them enough power to really liberate themselves because that would also lead to, a, um, what's it called? Like, uh, ah, God talking a different language um, <laughs> like, like a destabilization of the society right mm-hmm. um but i i think it's really interesting like what when you were asking like what what should we do i'm gonna take this like totally off the book page now and just go into this idea that i had the other day i which took us like, off though. <laughs> which is like i i woke up yesterday and i was thinking about like hmm, what is this uh like what what is the significance of aesthetics under capitalism and um and how does that sort of fuel this um phenomenon of lifestyle and what is lifestyle and how is that type of aesthetics and how is aesthetics tied to the sort of continuing of consummation under capitalism or consumerism so basically what i thought was really interesting is like um I think a lot a lot of people think that their lifestyle is something that they choose out of a sort of inherent personal desire and that it's um a choice that's grounded in freedom and autonomy. But what I would say is that like lifestyle and aesthetics is a choice that's coerced for us to do under capitalism because we need something to consume from like we need a roadmap to consumerism like how am i gonna consume oh i'm a punk that means i consume in this way or i am a whatever 
bread baking mother that means i consume in this way you know like um so we're kind of coerced into choosing these identities and these aesthetics which then determine like our social circle our hobbies etc cetera, etc cetera. and by now like you know political ideology for instance feminism has also gotten an aesthetic attached to it which means that it's become a lifestyle and once it becomes a lifestyle it comes with a prescribed set of ideologies that you have to sort of prescribe to meaning if i'm a queer feminist which i used to identify as like meaning it's sort of a, a strain within academic thinking specifically queer feminism it's not saying so much about my sexuality though i also identify as queer but the thing is like if i identify as a queer feminist then i have a specific aesthetics for instance i have a funny haircut i wear uh colorful clothing often somewhat sort of urban maybe i'll wear a pair of funny sneaks you know like and with that comes like the set of ideology th that i have to prescribe to but the problem with it is that it's kind of eliminating or like sorry restricting our sort of theoretical lens to which we can think through so we're restricting ourselves in our ability to think critical about the world because we sort of place our belonging within a certain kind of aesthetic over our critical thinking so that's like a weird way of saying when you're asking like what does this all mean what should we do it's like i think it's really important for instance reading this text to say okay i prescribe to the ideas of silvia federici that doesn't mean that one has to prescribe to a certain kind of aesthetic or a certain kind of identity and once we sort of are able to lift ourselves out of that restricted space in which the problems that we identify and the solutions that we identify are mounted in the aesthetics that we desire we can really start building broad sort of foundations of solidarity in which we can like let's say challenge each other in discussion and think more freely because it it's not sort of a a challenge or a threat to my aesthetic which ultimately comes around because i need it in order to be like able to navigate consumerist capitalism so just to say anybody who's who's listening to this i would say the solution is to further educate yourself with theory and to engage in discussion with people who don't agree with you and to sort of like maybe take a critical look on this desire to for for lifestyle and say lifestyle and aesthetics is fine i have one too or many <laughs> but it's not the same as political action. I don't know if that made sense. I hope it, it does. And strangely, I feel like I'm in the twilight zone because I just went on a walk the other day and had this exact conversation. Um, but, I, I, you know, I won't, I, I don't know. It's like where to enter it. I guess the thing that's coming up for me is this idea that it is largely, it, it kind of comes down to this point of like belonging. And, you know, we, we tend to, not everyone, but we tend to fall into a certain kind of identity, like you're talking about, like queer feminist, whatever. 
I don't know if I have a strong identity, um, but, but, you know, in my studies of like cult behavior and things like that, even just looking at religion, right, which is part of this chapter, there is a, there is a basic need for humans to be loved. And usually we find that through companionship and, and acceptance by others. And so we, we, we hope to find the group that accepts us. And to me, that seems like more of the driving force than it is like this consumerist uh, thing, which consumerism comes into everything um, in many ways. But to me, it feels more like it's this really deep need to feel belong, belonging to something and have connection with other people. And But that, that's just to say that that does limit us. That sense of desire and need to be loved by somebody else will prevent us from considering other viewpoints. If, if we know our group doesn't accept it, we will not consider it, which is why it's so hard to have a conversation about socialism or communism or Marxism or anything else. So I agree. It's like, let's focus less on labels and just focus on the ultimate goal. Like you talked about last week, autonomy and freedom. And for us to try to identify where we can, where we can align in that, because I feel like, you know, there, there are many ways that most of us are probably seeking the same thing. Um, so that's what comes up for me when I hear you say all of that. Um, you know, capitalism kind of mucks it all up because, because money is so much a part of like survival. And I feel as though once people have money, it's very hard to, to not have it. And it's almost like an addiction. So the more you get, the more you want, not everyone, but it can be, it can be like a drug. And so once that it, it kind of enters the equation, then that's a further uh, kind of barrier to really being a free thinker and an autonomous actor because it's influenced by your group, your desire to be along, belong, and your desire to have whatever it is, oftentimes wealth, status, whatever, the home in the neighborhood that you fit into, blah, blah, blah. Um, which, which when I start to think about all that stuff, I get very depressed because I think, how in the heck are we going to undo all that? <laughs> Something you just said reminded me of like the next text that I want to read is Heidegger's The Question on Technology and uh, Heidegger was a Nazi yeah. um, but also a pretty cool thinker and uh, I haven't read any of his, of his stuff yet but there was something about what you said which made me really think about like this idea of autonomy because he kind of he talks about that too right so I listen to a podcast about the text, which is what I do half of the time because I don't have time to read everything that I want to read. So I follow a few philosophy podcasts and then I get like, you know, I can do the dishes and I'm like, oh, <laughs> learning about Heidegger. Um, but um, the host of the podcast sort of uh, recaptured some of the stuff that Heidegger talks about by saying that like Heidegger sort of like talks about different kinds of technology 
And and at one point, this is the the example that the host used, which I don't know if that's what Heidegger uses, but the difference between a mine and a windmill. So like the mine, you're sort of extracting to the point where you can start hoarding. And with other kinds of sort of technology that's also like mining energy, you're not extracting to the point where you can hoard. I mean, now we can store electricity, but just imagine like an old school windmill, right? When there's wind, you have electricity or power, whatever, or the mill is going or whatever it is. Um, so I, I just thought that was like a really interesting perspective to also like add into the, to, to the, I mean, we're like way off the text right now, right? We're just like speculating, but just to say like, <laughs> we're, we're talking on the phone like we do. <laughs> right. Yeah. Uh, but, but just to say like something that, that I also think is really interesting because this is like, this text is rooted in Marxist thinking. And Marx also talks about the importance of, of like, wealth hoarding like that's what happens when when you're able to like when you uh, uh equate wealth to money it's again it's an object where you can suddenly hoard resources because the resources are sort of magically transformed into an object that doesn't like go bad you know gold doesn't spoil and you can just have it laying around, then you can exchange it into whatever you need at the moment. So it allows for people to hoard. And once you have the, the possibility to hoard, you can then basically take more than what you need. And it's, it becomes like a way to hold on to material power because you have resources that other people need. Right. So there's also, I mean, like, it's just to say like this thing that you said to about m money makes everything more difficult where I'm like, yes, it really does make everything more difficult because I mean, something that I'm really interested in is power and different kinds of power, but definitely a way that you can coerce the world through um, to, to sort of, to do whatever you wanted to do is to, these resources that we then agree are able to be transformed into actual material needs that we that we all need right and that's why I'm often sort of going towards like we should have the subsistence that we need in order to survive which is also what Federici talks about with the commons right like when when people have access to housing or food or whatever else like they they actually need which this world does supply for free then you can't coerce them in the same way as you can when you're able to deprive them of the resources that they need and then hoard them from them by saying, you know, I will, I will take all this gold, which I can then sort of exchange into the resources that I need. And I will enclose the public space or the commons that existed that you could get subsistence from. And so I just thought like the reason why I brought up the Heidegger thing was just that, I mean, there's like a similar, there, there's at least some kind of thread thinking about hoarding resources and the different technologies that are used to sort of hoard resources. And so I think maybe there's also like a more fundamental way that now I'm just totally speculating, but sort of going towards technologies and thereby I mean technology in its broadest sense, also just like 
thinking about the world in a different way. I mean, Federica talks about mechanical philosophy being sort of a, a primer for capitalism. Um, like if we would think towards imagining a world in which like we were less interested in technologies that allows us to hoard resources and more interested in sort of like technologies that are sustainable um, and grants people autonomy because hoarding really is like a step into coercion, you know? Um, yeah, that was just some thoughts. I feel like money is in an enclosure right now. What do you mean by that? That the people who have a lot of it are holding onto it and don't give access to anybody else. And so it's like money, the fundamental thing that people need to survive and get, do things in life is in an enclosure and people don't have access to it. Yeah. yeah and that- I would, I mean, I would say money is a technology that is meant to be enclosed and hoarded. That's why it exists. That's the whole point, you know? So it's doing kind of what it was meant to do. Because I would say, like, I think what people should have access to is free housing and access to land, you know? Like, I don't see why such big parts of the world is private. Like, and that's, like, one of the points in this book, right? It's, like, in order to create, to prime a place for capitalism, you have to have witch hunts because that way you root out the resistance that women often have been a vital part of because they're the ones who are going to be affected mainly because they don't have the same access to the wage market and because they're sort of like culturally often really dependent on access to land as well as like um, there's also this way that like you need to break their autonomy because you need them to provide the like you need them to create the working class, you know? I mean, imagine like what would have happened if it's, I mean, I, I don't really, I mean, this is again speculating from the text, but I imagine like if the witch hunts would have even been, or like capitalism just wouldn't have been possible if the enclosures hadn't happened, you know? Like if if people, and I mean like, with that, there's like, what if the enclosures never would have happened and the witch trials never would have happened? Would we have had capitalism or would the peasants have overthrown the nobility and potentially ushered in this sort of radical imagination of the world that they were about to? Like, I mean, this is, as much as this is a book about women's oppression, this is also a book about like a really specific moment in time where like the the peasantry was really mounting a significant resistance and it's like kind of like a tipping point you know that that passed them by um so so i think it's also like the way that i read it is also understanding like okay these dynamic these technologies haven't really changed that much because she's saying how this is happening in Africa, Latin America, India, like with the witch trials and the same kind of structure is just being put in place in these different places where they're priming for capitalism. 
Um, but it also kind of means that like you can look at what happened and then potentially learn from like, oh, what made their resistance so powerful? Well, it was access to resources, right? So there's also like, I mean, looking to, to like, what should we be doing? Like how, what can we do? I would say like, well, what was really working for these peasants, you know? Yeah, I mean, without, while they had the, before the enclosures, they had, they were able to subsist. Um, but once the enclosures happened, I think that was, that was the beginning of the end because even, even though there was resistance, there was just no place for them to, you know, get what they needed. And in, in some way, like I, I've, I've been getting into this sort of meta, meta, meta thing, like where suddenly I started thinking, well, even the women in revolt were doing a bit like Caliban in which they were using the tools of the master to fight the master and they were definitely going to lose. They were never going to win because they were just so deeply, you know, entrenched already you know, like the, the society was was already at the dis, at predisposed to this happening. You know, like it, it it was gonna happen because because you know women were were always being dominated by men before this happened, just not quite as badly, and they did still have their collective. Um, you know, the collective, the, the women had their collective power against the men or in defense for, of the men who were still, you know, dominating them. But um, yeah, I've been thinking, yeah, the, the, the women were using the tools of the master the whole time. And um, in some way, like I keep having to resist this sort of fantasy while I was, while I'm reading the book. Like I'm rereading it. I, I can't keep having to remind myself that there was not like this fantasy, like Island of Amazons before, you know, like I, I can't be nostalgic for like a past where women had more power when they didn't really have that much more power. They had, a, they had a, a collective resistance ability, but they were still being dominated. And and the worst happened, it got taken to its utter extreme through the witch hunts. And, and instead of being nostalgic or thinking like, oh, look what was taken away from the women. Um, I should not be romanticizing this past um, because it, it wasn't that great anyway. And what, what I should be thinking of is like, what do I want for the future? Like this past that I'm romanticizing and and sort of yearning for and 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 ruining the loss of didn't exist. What 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 I'm what I'm ruining for is actually a future. You know, a system in which the this is not the case. Um, yeah, the future is what I wanted the past to to be. <laughs> you know, like that I was fantasizing. I I don't want to fantasize about the past anymore especially the more I read about the past and not being really that all that hot for women. Um, what we're talking about now, like since we're, we're reading, we're all reading this book for a reason. We all got interested in it during the pandemic for a reason, which was that suddenly women realized like what, what's going on here. You know, we, we all, we're all alone. We're enclosed in, in a house, 
you know, doing the work for a guy who's like writing his book at last because he could get, he can stay home, you know, and I'm doing the child raising and the cleaning, you know, while the guy is like writing, you're like, well, I could live, you know, I could finally work on my novel. Um, you know, th th there's a reason this book became so valid and pertinent during this pandemic. And so instead of thinking, you know, like I said, I, I want to think about this book is asking us to think about the future or about this fantasy world where we had more power. And, and instead of, yeah, instead of looking at it as a past, let's project it into the future. They're talking about a Marshall plan for moms. Now I saw that in the times today, you know, like giving women more power, uh, money and ability, ability to, to advance themselves. Although I'm not a mom and never will be, but I mean, you know, it's, they are talking about giving women more. It's sort of funny because I, I searched on Quora for something like, I think I searched like Marxism or something, you know, cause I wasn't familiar really with the theories and whatnot before starting to really read this book. So now Quora sends me every day I get like, you know, <laughs> these, these conversations about Marxism and capitalism and whatnot. And actually this morning I got one and it was somebody had asked a question like, is capitalism really that bad or what's so evil about capitalism? And I don't remember exactly what was said, and it was a very short thread. There hadn't been a lot of comments on it, but it was interesting because somebody had basically replied saying, you know, like, <clears throat> it was at first thought to be this progressive shift, you know, from the feudalistic system, but ultimately it didn't work. And, you know, communism hasn't worked and socialism hasn't worked ultimately. And what we need to do is like, imagine something brand new. Like, like you're saying, Carolita, it, like it is not going to come from an exact replica of the past, anything that we've experienced. It, it has to be something brand new. And maybe if we talk about it that way, it, it can feel more inclusive and less threatening to people that, you know, what we're really trying to do is benefit everyone. Um, and that the idea, the goal is honestly for everyone to be taken care of. That means you too. So you shouldn't feel threatened by having this conversation about what the world should look like, like how we want to recreate it. Um, because people get very threatened when you start to talk about stuff like this. It's, you know, um, and and I guess I just want to acknowledge that, you know, like hoarding fear of having these conversations like they come from a very like sincere fear deep inside and and i mean yes there are some people that are motivated by ill intent but oftentimes it is coming from a deep fear that that person is not aware of that that's actually driving them and their behavior and i think if we could maybe address and assuade those fears it gives us a better chance to have a bigger conversation about it um, it's that time though, ladies, for us to take a drink of water, bathroom break, um, and, uh, we'll come back and keep talking. We'll, we'll get back to the text. Um, but I enjoy talking about all these things. So thanks for going, um, down this windy road with me. So you're listening to, I want what she has on radio Kingston, WKNY. AM 1490, FM 1079 in Kingston, New York. 
All right, all right. Getting back to the conversation uh, with uh, Raquel and Carolita, it's Teresa from I Want What She Has, and we're talking Sylvia Federici's Caliban and the Witch. And if you're just tuning in, Raquel has secured a, an interview with Sylvia Federici happening on April 19th. So mic calendars, folks. Um, all right, so we've just gone down the winding road of capitalism and oppression and money and hoarding and equality and a lot of different things. <clears throat> is there um, is there something specific to this chapter that either of you are kind of feeling inspired by to uh, continue the conversation. Um, there are a few things that will likely um, take us down another winding road if I bring up what's inspiring to me. So I'll, I'll listen to you both first. <laughs> Can I add something before we totally disembark from the last sort of thread mm -hmm. i also think it's really nice just to let it hang out for once you know i feel like yeah okay we made it through the book we let we get to like now like we can discuss and have fun and i mean we'll also talk about the chapter but as mentioned it's not the longest nor the most difficult one so it also opens up to have a little bit of a discussion but i just want to say like um i one of my friends from my marxist reading group reached out the other day when I was talking about like uh, this whole idea around identity and lifestyle and stuff like that. And he just like, I'll make it short, but basically what he said was like, there's also a way that people feel very disempowered and very confused about what would a real revolt look like. And maybe also even sort of are grasping at what is capitalism even. And, and I think that's also like a thing that I really want to sort of step into saying like this book is also like I mean the way that I read it is it is a a broadening of what is capitalism it adds on to the pre-existing theoretical foundation saying capitalism is primitive accumulation and it has these effects on these specific groups it is exploiting these differences in the working class because of this and this. And that's actually like a lot of the work that I've seen so far that I've engaged with from Silva Federici. This whole idea of reproductive labor was really adding on this whole idea that unwaged labor under capitalism still is partaking in capitalism. So I think there's this way where the discussion of what is capitalism is still alive and well. Um, and it's something that anybody can sort of participate in by reading. And, and I think that's really important that, that we like just to tell whoever is listening, like it's okay if you don't understand what capitalism is, it's really hard to wrap your head around. I am also in the process of learning about it. And I've sort of determined myself to be like, I want to understand it from all these different perspectives, meaning like psychologically, historically, and sort of from the, the point of it being an economic system. But it, it has, 
the whole idea that economics is sort of a, a science for itself and it's separate is also kind of a, a scam, I think, because of course the the sort of the paradigm that decides how materials circulates in the world is more than just a economic system. I mean, Marx was a sociologist. He he thought like behind this idea of economics is really human interactions and commodities are traveling from people to people and it positions people in certain ways within this power hierarchy. Um, so yeah, that's just what I wanted to say because like I said, my friend was like, we need to take a step back and look at what is capitalism really before we sort of start positioning ourselves within certain kinds of categories that are relating to lifestyle and stuff like that. And I'm hoping that for instance, a discussion like this that we're having on the radio can help that like really maybe shake up a little bit what people imagine the identity of somebody who's interested in, in revolutionary politics might be, you know, that we're all three very different people and we're on this public radio station discussing it and it's it can be that accessible yes that's just yeah so i wanted to title a bow on it we can jump into the chapter if you want thank you raquel carolita you're muted just so you know again (laughs) (laughs) well they're, they're doing some work outside and i didn't want to have the, the jackhammering come Thank through. Um, yeah, I think this this chapter is basically, you know, a summing up, uh, you know, and a drawing of parallels between the witch, witch huntery in Europe and the witch huntery in the present and also on other continents. It just like brings it all together, like particularly with the, the drawings, you know, where she compares the drawings of uh, witches in Europe with the drawings of witches in in the Americas, um, and I think she does. She, she she does go into the witches in in Africa as well, and this. So yeah, it's 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 a great chapter to end on, and as as we begin to draw the parallels to our own, to our present, and to you know the the strategies being used to, to divide us against each other in the present. So um, yeah, I realized that this is I reread this chapter just specifically for for today and I realized yeah this is what what's going on here is we're we're, we're tying an, a, a bow around it um you know drawing the lines so that we know what we're looking at and um and I think that it's, it's a call to to look at ourselves definitely a call to look at ourselves in our present because I, I I might remind you uh I don't know if I have to but that you know right in the in the introduction she talks about how she uh, she observed this basically happening in Nigeria, where she when she was living and working in Nigeria. I, I, am I right that it was Nigeria? I don't want to make a yeah. mistake, but yeah. So uh, you know, she was able to observe some of this happening, you know, in the present. I think that was like in the two thousands when she was there. So um, yeah, I, I I I love the idea of drawing the bringing this book into the present. I, I also want to add something that I th- I think is interesting. Like it kind of came up for me when you were saying this thing about she parallels these drawings of witches in different places. And basically the whole chapter is about sort of paralleling 
the devil worship that people were um, accused of in South America and then like the sort of witch trials that were happening in, in Europe. She says like, oh, basically, as far as I understand the chapter she's saying, like often it hasn't been really recognized how similar those two things were, the, the sort of persecution for devil worship and the persecution for witches. And just because people weren't necessarily always recognized as witches doesn't mean that it wasn't the same process. So she's sort of trying to make an argument for how similar these different processes was and thereby position what happened in South America as also a form of witch hunts. And then she goes on to parallel all these different places because it allows her to really cement the, her argumentation that primitive accumulation is an ongoing necessary process for capitalism to exist. Um, but I also thought it was really interesting to think about how this image of the witch is, or the devil worshiper is projected on very different people with very different cultures and very different practices. So it doesn't necessarily say anything about the person who is being accused. It says more about the accuser. So I think that's also important to bring into the discussion now when there's this sort of reemergence of the witch, where people are almost taking on the idea of what the witch was imagined as by the accuser. Witches did this, witches did that, with blah, blah, blah. Where I'm like, okay, but you also have to be critical about who's who made those statements and where are the voices of the people who were actually accused. Um, and that also means, I mean, I think it's like bringing in sort of a somewhat of a critical attitude towards historical sources. And that, yes, it can be powerful to claim certain um demonized positions in general, like I can say that I'm a slut, you know, am I allowed to say that on the radio? I think so. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> like, I mean, like, you know, there's this thing is like slut walk that where people are like, yes, I'm claiming that I'm sort of taking that away as something that can be used to, to um, control me. But in that, I think it's, and, and there we're back to like this idea of identity being a form of political revolt and all this stuff where it's like, it can be used as a strategy, of course, but um, to create that positioning as something like powerful, if I'm gonna be called this, then I'm gonna make it powerful for me. Um, so, so you, yeah. I kind of feel like that is why there's been a resurgence of the witch you know, that, that it is, even though, you know, we might have opinions about how it's being embodied and how it's being utilized in a capitalistic system, but it does feel like that is the feminist, there is an element of feminist activism that is reclaiming the witch. And, um, and that that's kind of precisely like what you're talking about in a sense, right? Totally. I mean, like the witch is like, and that's also what Federici writes in the beginning of the book is like an old feminist symbol that like, I mean, a lot of scholars have been thinking about it and been like, why we're not more aware of this, like, uh, this genocide on women that happened? Why isn't that being discussed? Why did Foucault not talk about it? Why didn't Marx talk about it? 
And I mean, that's because of their inherent misogyny, one must presume that like, oh, something that happened to women can't be so important for world history. Let's just like glide over that and say, what a mistake. People were so stupid in the Middle Ages and talk about something else, you know, but, like. But these things also happen to women who they did not consider true women. I mean, the witch is the antithesis of everything that the, you know, the male, the dominant male patriarchy considers to be womanly but that's also right where so I, like they're, right. they're the other they're the opposite of what they should be right and and you know the calling this the other a witch i mean strong women have been the opposite of what a woman is supposed to be since even roman antiquity i mean the the reason the romans hated the etruscans for occupying them was because they considered that the that what well, the rumor was that the Etruscan women were 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 powerful that they they did gymnastics in the nude and they drank wine with their husbands and and had like social lives like oh my god you know that's the opposite of what a Roman woman should be so like even as far back as Roman antiquity the opposite of what a woman is, is supposed to be is is demonized. Like this, these were not real women. So right, but I mean, I just also want to say I don't think that identity is a very stable concept. That's why I don't think that it's a good place to build solidarity and political resistance from. So right, right. So just to say, at the time when witches were being burned, that was how women were being imagined, that they were wild, that they were like dangerous, uh, that that they had these sort of malignant qualities and that they had to be tamed and then like once that was ruled out the new femininity sort of is imagined as women are so subdued they're like just there to sort of like they're pleasant they're nice they're there to love people like they're not dangerous anymore so gender has really changed a lot i mean like the sort of there's a there's a story which is one of the first i think written sort of stories that that appears in Danish literature that we had to read this like because I studied Danish literature it's a translation from some kind of French story blah 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 it's very very old it's called flower and white flower and the hero of flower and white flower which is flower and his girlfriend white flower um is a prince and he's just like the biggest wuss ever he just like pays people to do things for him he cries all the time he's like out to save white flower and he just like by today's standards we're like that's a really weird masculinity that he's promoting but at the time a sort of real man who of course was shaped in the version of sort of nobility was soft he was a poet you know he he wasn't tough so and I mean, at that time, I think there was also like a time in the Baroque times where men wore pink and that was like perceived as really masculine, like high heels and pink clothes, you know, and a fluffy wig. Like then you're like really masculine. So just to say like these ideas of gender shift all the time. Um, and that's really important to be aware of that like we at our point in time are looking back, sort of imagining things from the current paradigm of gender, but it's really shaped a lot like or shifted a lot over time so it's true what you're saying that like strong women i would read into that women with autonomy have always been a threat but that doesn't necessarily mean that femininity has been imagined the same way always um so so 
with that, what, what I wanted to say with this thing about like the witches and like, it's yes, it is like a feminist symbol. It's important, but what Federici does that is beyond the sort of like talking about gender and culture is that she also talks about it um, from a fr from an important standpoint of writing about history in general. Often women's history, like Women's History Month, is sort of pushed to the side and we're like, oh, this concerns everybody who is identifying as women, where she's saying, no, this is a concern to the proletariat in general. Actually, this is a concern for everybody in general. This is a really important part of the history. If we don't talk about it because we imagine it as only being for women, we're really missing out on understanding a significant part of what capitalism is and how it continuously functions across gender and culture. So that's what I'm like, like, so, so the point being like, I think it's important when people also sort of think about and claim this position of which, which I'm in no way like opposed to, but that they also sort of remember who wrote the history. What are the sources that we have available to us? And that like, again, the, the image of the witch remains the same across culture. Does that say anything about the cult, like the actual practices that people had when they're described as a witch? No, it says something about the imagination of the colonizer, which in their imagination, the sort of rebellious attitude of the autonomous body is imagined as the same, which means that they're working for the devil, right? And that's what I think is worth focusing on. It's an interesting point. We, we've got to take a break here in a second. But one of the things that I thought was also interesting related to that, not as important as what you're talking about, but I just thought it was kind of fascinating that like there wasn't really the concept of the devil in, in South America and, and in North America, that it was this European thing based in whatever Christianity or where, or wherever it came from originally, but like the concept of the devil didn't exist. And so when they came over, when the colonizers came over, they actually imported or exported the concept of the devil and started to apply it to people they deemed as witches and, you know, did the same types of things, tortured them into confessing and thus became this, belief you know this demonization of them as devil worshipers even though they didn't actually have an understanding of the devil continuing our witch which is in witch hunt conversation related to chapter five of caliban and the witch with carolita and raquel and hey sue thanks for tuning in and listening or watching um would it be okay if i read the last paragraph of the chapter i felt like this was important and i don't want um it to be forgotten in the last you know half hour that we have here um <clears throat> so this is the end of chapter five the end of the book and Silvia Federici writes, the witch hunts that are presently taking place in Africa or Latin America are rarely reported in Europe and the United States in the same way as the witch hunts of the 16th and 17th centuries for a long time were of little interest to historians. 
Even when they are reported, their significance is generally missed. So widespread is the belief that such phenomena belong to a far gone era and have nothing to do with us. But if we apply to the present the lessons of the past, we realize that the reappearance of witch hunting in so many parts of the world in the 80s and 90s is a clear sign of a process of primitive accumulation, which means that the privatization of land and other communal resources, mass impoverishment, plunder, and the sowing of divisions in once cohesive communities are again on the world agenda. Quote, if things continue this way, unquote, the elders in a Senegalese village commented to an American anthropologist, expressing their fears for the future, quote, our children will eat each other, end quote. And indeed, this is what is accomplished by a witch hunt whether it is conducted from above as a means to criminalize resistance to expropriation or is conducted from below as a means to appropriate diminishing resources, as seems to be the case in some parts of Africa today. And I feel like that kind of summarizes a little bit about... Um, like what we've been talking about, you know, both of you have already mentioned points to that, but I wanted to acknowledge um, Sylvia's text here um, in a specific way. And, um, and, you know, like each week I've been kind of thinking like, what's a feminist action to do? And I didn't really think of one this week, <clears throat> but I feel like it's just this kind of call to start to view the world through different, a different lens Right. Because, I mean, the media, right, bless its whatever heart. <laughs> <laughs> I, I am the media right now. We are the media, um, you know, can only do so much or only does as much as it's humanly possible. And um, I was grateful for the NPR reporting about the, the Ghanaian women um, in the witch camps but it is like, what are we thinking is important? Um, you know, Turkey is experiencing, um, you know, a, a really bad shift in the way that they are um, sort of changing the way that the regulations are um, related to violence against women that have a terrible problem with violence against women. And, you know, there's there's things happening all over the world that we, as a Western society, um, don't always hear about, and and I don't know what we do about it necessarily. You know, it's kind of like I've been I've received the message in more than one way to just you know kind of play in my own sandbox that I don't need to worry about necessarily what's going on in other countries, but I think it's important to have an awareness of it. Um, but even if we look at what's happening in our country, right, like we've already mentioned, there's a reason this text and Sylvia Federici was featured in the New York Times, you know, a month and a half ago, because we are still continuing to, to confront the realities of women being enclosed and women's labor being unpaid, even though it is without it, our economic system would collapse. 
I think I think I want to just mention that um, the the word witch hunt has been used over the last four years uh, a lot, <laughs> and because um, I, I was thinking, you know, like yeah, obviously one of the first signs of of something uh, going awry in a country is that there will be witch hunts, you know, and um, and although there weren't any actual witch hunts here in America, just the fact that um, the last president was constantly using the word witch hunt was to me a sign of something, you know, like he, he obviously was notorious for projecting whatever he was doing onto people who he thought opposed him. So like, I was like, well, if, if he's accusing somebody of doing a witch hunt, then the witch hunt must be on against, you know, but in, in just some other subverted or, you know, imperceivable form that we're not looking for. So, um, yeah, just the, the, the word witch hunt coming up again and again. It was really infuriating, too. Like, you're just thinking, like, my God, like, is, how dare he use this word, you know, like when there's actual women <laughs> to hear him. Um, yeah, just the, that the frequency of that word being pronounced was just unbelievable and I thought a, a sign that something was going on. And but can I also say like this thing with witch hunt, I think it's really interesting that he was using that word as like yeah. the most powerful person in the country who's so fucking <laughs> oh my god. I've done so well. Well whatever. Sorry about that one. I'm not from around here. But um but i he is so protected or was so protected whereas like the actual dissidents of the country were were being like persecuted and and, yeah, and he projected mean, right so so i both mean the whole thing of like antifa should be a terrorist organization where i'm like to me that feels like basically people were having their right to protest sort of called into question while also like the people who who like also like the the crackdown on immigrants the whole way that he was sort of dehumanizing people coming from south america and latin america was also like i mean that's much more like in tone with what we've learned a witch hunt is yeah um and I think that's an important point because it's like people are not going to be able to do the same things. I shouldn't say that. You never know what's possible. But people are less likely to try to repeat the same behavior, right? So, or at least to have it appear that they're doing the same thing, you know? So we have rights now. We have rights, uh, religious freedom, um, you know, we have rights, as, you know, whatever people to grow our own herbs, use herbs as medicine. So there cannot be necessarily a literal witch hunt necessarily, but it is done. It's being done, I think very subversively and, and it's the same. So it's not called that, but it, it is exactly the same model that is being applied Right. If we think about what's going on with sort of the anti-trans legislation, you know, like nobody's going to call that a witch hunt. But to me, it looks and feels like the same thing. 
And or what like what you say, Raquel, like with the immigrants to our country, it is the same methodology, right? It's the demonization of people. It's the fear that is being conjured by media around them. It's all these same types of things that are then kind of put into the consciousness to justify regulating them. So it's yeah, the, remember the caravans? The we were all supposed to be afraid of the caravans of you know, the hordes that were coming upon our country. Yeah. But can I say something again? Like, I think that points to like a, a, a core question that I keep circling back to. I admit it. I love this topic, but like, which is that like, it is not so much the sort of action itself, whether it's herbs or whatever people are into. It's, it's the dissident body that is, pointed out as a witch. Now, yes. that may be protesters. That may be um, immigrants who also, like, I mean, they're, they're, they're dissident in the fact that they're crossing the border, even if they're not allowed to, you know? Um, and it's also, I would, I mean, there's also, yes, there's the trans community, you know? And then I would also say, I mean, like, a major factor which is like this country relies on the continued exploitation and um, control of black bodies you know like there's that elephant in the room and and it's also like i mean last time i can't remember if i actually mentioned this but i just think it's really important to be like this system relies on the continued disempowerment of certain groups, you know, um, because there always needs to be a working class who's coerced into working and being exploited. And, but also something that I wanted to say, which was really interesting um, because of what, I think it was you who brought it up, Carolina, like that misogyny is older than capitalism, obviously. Um, and, and I think it also points to like sort of nuancing this discussion where like now people are saying when we get, and this is kind of, you know, an old discussion that has happened ever since the sort of emergence of, of communist ideologies that women should wait talking with talking about their oppression because we should first talk about the dismantling of capitalism. And once that's done, then we will all be equal. Then there won't be any racism. There won't be any misogyny. There won't be any of those things. So it's like, obviously sort of misogyny and I mean, racism is a, like in the way it exists now is fairly new and really tied to the slave trade, but the sort of labeling other groups and cultures as being less is really old. I mean, like you can look at how the Greeks talked about the Persians and stuff like that, where like, you know, they're obviously really making like making them into like these inhumane savages and blah, 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 all this stuff. Um, so I, I just think it also points to like, we won't solve the problem of these different biases and oppressions because they're actually much, much older and they're, but they're baked into capitalism. Like, 
and and the same with like the disdain for poor people the the feeling of the right that 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 the ruling classes feel that they have to exploit other people like their entitlement is also old i mean all those things were present under feudalism they were also present like way back in older texts i mean again like you know some of the oldest that we have are like greek or egyptian or whatever where like these dynamics were also present so I think it's like important to say like ending capitalism won't necessarily magically solve everything, but capitalism as it is right now is the ruling paradigm that is holding people into these locked positions of subordinates that are much, much older. So if we're going to actually try to liberate ourselves from this oppressive dynamic, we need to first deal with capitalism in order for there to be the space for us to imagine something new. And I mean, I read Franz Fanon recently and he sort of, and maybe this is like, maybe some people are gonna be upset with me now <laughs> because it's like uh, decolonial literature and now I'm just gonna sort of like broaden it out to talk about like generally how can we encounter capitalism and what's happening. But like Fr Franz Fanon talks about the within a colonial system that the native, as he calls the sort of origin, like the indigenous populations being colonized, can't even, like can't start to really imagine his freedom until the colonial rule has been, has, has disappeared. He doesn't say that then everything is fine. He says exactly this thing that you guys were talking about of like, then we can imagine the future. Um, a future that is built on like freedom, autonomy, equality, all these things. Um, so I kind of see that like, because I see colonialism as an extension of capitalism and that's like the primer for capitalism um, or like as not even that, but like as a, it is important for capitalism to function. It is important that it is functioning in the heart of the empire, just as important, like, and that it's that it has like a colonial area that it is colonizing and extracting wealth from. Both things need to be in place in order for it to function. Like that's also what Sylvia says, um, as far as I understand the text. So, so it's kind of like the way the native is kind of held in this dream state as Fanon talks about where they, they, they're so coerced, they're so oppressed by the system that they can't begin to liberate themselves in any way. Like they can't begin to sort of function as autonomous being. I would say is somewhat similar to how I view like other oppressed positions under capitalism. Like, I don't think that we can start to have a liberation of women until we rid ourselves of capitalism. That doesn't mean that the sort of feminist struggle is over once capitalism is gone, but it means that like we have to start there because as I said, baked into it is the oppression of women as again, the great Sylvia Federici argues. I mean, on the other hand, like women beginning to resist um, doing work for free is also a way of chipping away at the feet of capitalism. Totally. 
like once once you don't you know it's like taking the stick away from the bully like you know, the, the bully who's going to hit you if you speak and he's going to hit you if you don't speak so the only way to not get hit is to take the stick away so like if we take our work away in some you know what i mean like Certainly. It, it it's gonna it's got to be sort of simultaneous uh so that capitalism looks less and less um I was I was about to say attractive, but also like less viable. It and becomes less viable and less expected. You can't have capitalism if you're not getting that free work. Certainly, yeah. I mean, that's also why, like the other book that I that I talked about last time is called Revolution at Point Zero. Yes, I but, I need to read that. Oh, it's great. You can borrow yeah. my version if you like. But. Um, But it's also because, like she's saying, well, there is this potential for, for revolt and change within the the unwaged labor, which I mean is also like a lot of the places where like capitalism is most vulnerable is also like the places where it's exploiting people the most. You know, so it's kind of like being like, okay, what is it really reliant on? Well, it's really reliant on exploiting different kinds of, of labor once you put a stick in that cogwheel, it's broken. But yeah. then you also risk that like you're gonna face violence, like you're gonna face um, difficulty because I mean, that's what like basically this, these witch trials are, are also the women that were resisting this position that was, that was readied for them. And then they were faced with extreme violence and still are. Yeah, I suppose that's one of the things that worries me the most, you know, when I think about resistances, because like, you know, you think about, uh, you know, like Reagan sending in the National Guard when the when the, w- the air controllers went on strike, you know, like he li- he literally sent the military right. uh, to a strike. And, uh, and this happened in the past, too, with the Pullman strike with the trains when um, many of the Pullman were uh, I think they were mostly black and they they went on strike, too. And and. The army, I think the army was sent. So like the government has taken in the last century to crushing that dissidents with the military. But then you and, can also, I mean, yeah. you can also ask, was the nation state ever made to benefit its population? Yeah. You know, has it ever been a project that was meant to sort of ensure my, my, um, my equality and my autonomy and my sort of dignity as a human. I don't think so. No, no. I mean, and we've seen what happened with the black lives that matters and yeah. you know, the, the recent manifestation protests, sorry, I'm speaking French in, in London uh, uh, after this woman was killed by raped and killed by a police officer, the, the right. very police themselves began uh, reacting very violently to the women protesting so, you know, uprisings, uprisings are met with violence, yeah. serious violence. Uprisings by people of color, brown and black bodies are, and, and women are met with violence from the power, from the legitimate power, like from police and soldiers. I, um, I, I want to just chime in here and then we're going to take our last little break, but you know, I've been talking a little bit throughout this conversation about the caring majority rising, right? It's the group that is doing advocacy to raise the wage of home care workers in New York State and in other places. 
And the reality is that it's not one of the most popular, like, sexy campaigns that's getting people excited. And to me, I'm, I, I'm frustrated by that because this, it's this kind of work. If people were banding together and putting pressure on our government, which I realize it's the master's tools that we're using at that point, and there could be some argument about its overall effectiveness, like you're alluding to, but the reality is that they've actually come a far way, much farther than they thought they could, Caring Majority Rising has, and getting the support within the New York State legislature to have an increase in the minimum wage for these folks. But it's stuff like that. And But people aren't like broadly excited about it. Like There's nobody in my circle who is sharing about it or shouting about it or doing anything. And so to me, I just wonder like, you know, where's the breakdown? The infamous end of the show music. <laughs> Just floating us off into the ethers. <laughs> uh, so, ladies, final thoughts that you want to share about anything, anything at all. Well, I guess I, I just wanted to say my last bit about what we just talked about and say, I think that it's important that people question, like, for instance, we're talking about the revolutionary potential that women have because of the work that is put on them. So I think it's also important that, like, if we're going to start resisting in some ways by sort of refusing to do all this great labor, for instance... That also means that like we're the dependent on the people around us to be in solidarity with us, right? So I think it's important that, for instance, for any male identified listeners who have been sitting on the edge of their seat being like, what can I do? You know, it's like instead of being angry when you first lose the, the privilege and the labor that you've been basically receiving for free as a part of the, the sort of hierarchy of exploitation one can also see that as an important step towards the collective liberation and i think this is what people often fail to sort of see when when we have these discussions of like you have to give up power you just have to give up your privilege when like that kind of misses the point of like what it actually is it's like you give up something now so that on the long in, in the long term you gain so much more you know like for instance, I understand that, like, at least the way I see it, the liberation of Black people in this country is tied to my own liberation. So I'm not involved in that or in support of it or sort of wanting to do something for that out of guilt. It's like a legitimate uh, desire that I have for Black people to be liberated because then that also that ties in with my own struggle to be free because the working class and the proletariat are stronger when we stand together. That also means that like my partner, it is in his interest to be supportive of my autonomy and my liberation. And, and I mean, that's kind of how I see it. It's like sort of understanding that like we need to overcome this sort of split not because it's morally, ethically correct or not because my identity is this or that, like all those things are too unstable. It's 
because of our own interest in in the liberation of others so that we can work together and basically, you know, overcome the ruling class. I think the problem is, is people don't see that. And maybe we should talk about doing a show about that because I do think it would be helpful because it's like connecting the dots for folks. Although I don't know if those folks are listening. Anyways, Carolita, final thoughts. Um, yeah, I, I just, I, I constantly try to remind myself um, that I don't want to use the tools of the oppressor. I don't want to be like, I, a lot of people accuse me of being like anti-man, like, oh, you're a man hater because you, you're always objecting to stuff about the patriarchy. And, uh, and you know, I'm very conscious that it, you have to be careful not to project, uh, you know, not, not to do exactly what's being done to you in response to what's being done to you. Um, so, yeah, I, 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 I just want to say that I... I don't want to do this do to others what's been done to me. I don't want to have this constant, like like I said earlier, nostalgia for a past that probably probably never happened. I think what we want to do now is just think about the future. Instead of recovering something that we lost, we should be just striving for something that we can all share. Um, you know, like the, the patriarchal system and capitalism and the church and and th that all goes together. And you know, the oppression of of the people that, that all goes together. Um, what we should be doing is, is striving to understand it and then little by little, you know, dismantle it or like take pieces out of it and, and, and watch it sort of, you know, an analysis, analysis takes things apart and, uh, and then, and rebuild something better uh, with what we know and, and what we've discovered about it as we study it. Um, yeah. No, no nostalgia for the past. No, no, I'm not a man hater, although I, you know, I know I'm, I do have a lot of fun with it. <laughs> <laughs> She's a man hater. <laughs> but yeah, no, I, it's, I, I hate the sin and not the sinner, as they say in uh, France, where I, I like learned, that. That, where I picked that thing up. Um, yeah. So uh, um, let, let's talk about the future instead of the past, but we must know what the past is in order to uh, yeah. analyze and, and construct something better. I guess two of the things that maybe it's just this last conversation that just kind of hammered home for me was this idea of like, when I am in conflict with somebody, or feeling like I'm fighting against somebody for something, is it really my fight? Or is it somebody else? Is somebody else benefiting from me being in conflict with somebody else? Right? And, and anytime somebody is demonized by anybody to, to like, just don't believe it. Don't just, <laughs> you don't, there's somebody's agenda is behind that demonization. And, uh, and it's been used to divide and to conquer uh, since the dawn of time. Right. Sure. Um, and my age-old favorite is uh, religion is a mess. But <laughs> I won't go into that one. <laughs> I mean, I don't know how you don't read history and just think, like, how is this not a giant contradiction? 
anyways. Um, There's so a reason they don't, they barely teach Latin in school anymore. Cause if you were to read all those texts that started the church, you would be questioning it as I did. I read a lot of that Latin stuff. <laughs> um, so we're, we're reaching the end of the show and I just want to thank you both so much. This has been like just a highlight of my life much less like this radio show. Um, so I'm so grateful for this experience. Um, Raquel, you want to share a little bit about your upcoming exhibition? Yeah, I forgot to mention this in the beginning of the show, so I'll just plug this real short. I'm in a group exhibition in uh, Ossingen. Ossingen? Ossening? Ossening? Yes, thank you. <laughs> called Smother 0.2. It's from May 8th to May 29th. Um, I'll be presenting some new work and some older work. Um, and very fitting, it's called Care in a Time of Crisis. So Ooh. it's about like mothering, care, like all these different things. Um, that's going to be really interesting. I will be back on the 19th. I presume with the Silvia Federici interview. And I also just want to say, in case anybody is interested in my work, you can find me on Instagram, Raquel.makes.mistakes. Um, and I'm sort of playing around with the idea of making some workshops around power and autonomy here in Kingston. Like probably some kind of free open, let's experiment and have some conversation stuff. So in case you want to, I don't know, stay tuned on that. You can find me online. That's it. I love it. And I, in each one of these episodes, both the contact information for these women is found in the show notes. So you can look there in case you missed what Raquel just said. I will link to information that I can find about Raquel's show. I will link to um, Carolita's reading with Sari Botten on April 13th. And I'll be back on Monday. I'm excited um, for my guests on Monday. New day, new kind of new rebranding of the show a little bit even. So just not not anything crazy, but <laughs> just getting a little more spunky with it. Okay. Mm -hmm. um, and so, yeah, thank you so much to Nick for running the dials. You can hear Nick's show, Freedom Highway, on Sundays. Raquel is often on. Um, thanks to Shauna Falana for the jams for our show all the time. And uh, I guess that's all until Monday. Love yourself and uplift one another. Thanks, everyone. Thank thanks, you. Ladies.